0: Thank you, Aaron. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. Um, I heard a wee story last week about a David and a Rosemary. They were elderly farming couple. They'd just retired, and they'd been going to a local fair for years and years—forty years—they'd been going to this local fair. But for the last twenty years at that fair, there'd been helicopter rides had been offered. And Rosemary was very, very keen to get on this helicopter ride, uh, but it was 50 dollars. and Dave said, "Every year, 50 dollars is 50 dollars, Rosemary, we can't afford it." And Rosemary got progressively upset, and every year she would ask Dave, we could go surely, surely we could go on this ride." Anyway, the, the pilot got word of this, and he said to Dave, "Look, Dave, you can go free." On one condition, during this 10 minute ride, if you say nothing, it will be free. If you say anything, it's gonna cost you the $50. So they went on the ride, and the helicopter was banking and putting on quite a display, and they got down at the end of the 10 minutes, and the pilot turned to Dave and said, that was remarkable, you didn't say a word. And Dave said, yeah, I know. I thought I was gonna say something when Rosemary fell out, but $50 is $50. (laughs) Dave was one of my Scottish ancestors. (laughs) When I went to school many, many years ago, when I went to primary school, it was a few years after Max Scott went to primary school, but it was many, many years ago. And uh, at Lintur's primary, on a regular basis, the Presbyterian minister would show up and teach Bible in schools. The Anglican vicar would show up and teach Bible in schools, and the Catholic priest would also show up and teach Bible in schools, and all 72 of us at Linterst Primary would head off and hear teaching from the Word of God. I don't know of any schools in Dunedin now that are teaching Bible in schools. I think there's one or two out at Mosgill, but I don't think, there may be one left in in Dunedin, but I don't think there are many. The age that we live in Is a different age to a generation ago. We're now living in an age where Muslim prayers are being publicized publicly. The secular pluralism that is defining our public life is now changing the way we have to live our lives as Christians. This Secular pluralism, where truth is claimed to be relative and vague and contradictory notions of diversity and tolerance and inclusion shaping our public life. Alongside this supposed tolerance is a very aggressive intolerance to Christianity. Today, we find ourselves back in the place where first century Christians are living. There is a hostility, In our climate today that is very very similar to the climate that Christians in the first century had to embrace and it's for that reason that we're going to jump into first Peter over the next three months this morning we're starting first Peter and over the next three months we're going to take a leisurely journey through this letter that Peter wrote to those first century Christians and the reason we're doing that is because the context that they found themselves in then is very, very similar to the context that we so- find ourselves in here. It's not a particularly long letter. Uh, it's five chapters, First Peter, and so we're going to dig deeply and not rush through it. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on First Peter, makes the opening statement. The message of First Peter concerns how Christians are to live in a hostile environment and live in such a way that they not only endure, but also have a lasting impact for good on that environment. Now, if you haven't experienced hostility in your walk as a Christian, then it may be that you're just keeping your head down, and trying not to offend people, but we're going to learn over these next three months as we journey through First Peter that actually keeping our head down, trying not to offend people, trying not to offend the age of secular pluralism, is not the way of faithful Christianity. So, if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me, and uh, we're going to unpack only the first two verses uh of first peter this morning before i do that a couple more introductory comments obviously it was peter who wrote uh, this first letter the apostle but we learn in chapter 5 verse 12 that he co-wrote it with silas and that's significant because silas was a significant player in the early church silas we learn quite a lot about in the book of acts we learn about silas in acts 15 we learn that he was a prophet We also learn in chapters 16 and 17 and 18 in the book of Acts that he was sent out as a mission partner with Paul and Timothy. He played a key role in the establishment of the early church. Significantly, Silas was a Roman citizen. The apostle Peter was not, but Silas was a Roman citizen. And so when Paul claimed his Roman citizenship, Uh, and he was whisked off to Caesar, Silas went with him. And he had all the rights of a Roman citizen. And we're going to learn why that's a little bit significant shortly. Peter, of course, was the key author of this letter. And we know as much about Peter as probably about any of the other disciples or apostles, perhaps with the exception of Paul. At the time of writing, Peter was the head of the church based in Rome, we know well his journey from the shores of Galilee as a fisherman, walking with Jesus for those three years, watching all the miracles, watching the profound impact that Jesus had on everybody that he came into contact with. And then, of course, in Holy Week, Peter played such an important role, didn't he, in those last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. We know how he denied Christ three times in that last week. But significantly before that, during his ministry, I just want to pick up on some verses from Mark's gospel that I believe helped shape the person that Peter was when he wrote this text. And I'm reading from Mark chapter 8. You'll know the passage well. uh, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 31, We learn that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when Jesus turned and looked at his disciple, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, at that point in his ministry, was very, very keen for Jesus to avoid suffering. And you know the response. Jesus' response was, this is not from God. This is from Satan himself. Get behind me, he rebuked him. Now, I'm pretty sure that that rebuke of Jesus has a bit to do with the writing and how how Peter carries himself in the post-resurrection. As we mentioned, Peter denies Jesus three times on those last last days. But then comes the profound uh, threefold commission, the reinstatement of Peter, if you like, and that's what we heard read to us this morning. We can't understand 1 Peter, unless we understand the commission that Jesus gave to him, the threefold commission, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. This is in the background of First Peter. So this morning we're going to look at those first two verses, and we're going to drill down into those first key verses in First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit To be obedient to Jesus Christ And sprinkled with his blood Grace and peace be yours in abundance Peter the Apostle of of jesus christ he is the sent delegate of jesus christ sent with a message that's really what the meaning behind the word apostle is he is the sent one he has a message that he has to proclaim to all who would listen now that was that was peter's ministry remember he is leading the church at rome at this point at the writing of this letter And so now he is sending someone on his behalf with this letter. It's likely that Silas was actually the one that carried this letter, to carry the message that Peter had been given, that he had gleaned over the three years of walking with Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To whom? Who was this letter sent to? This letter was sent to God's elect. Now we're going to find as we go through this letter over the next three months, we're going to find pretty convincing evidence that Peter is writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles. But these next few few words that Peter uses in in that opening phrase are very, very Jewish in the language that he uses. To God's elect. To the chosen ones. This is Jewish language that Peter is using, even though he is writing to Gentiles. The phrase is unmistakably Jewish. Israel was the chosen people of God's. If we go back to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, we hear the following. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples, on the face of the earth to be his people, a treasured possession. The Jews were the elect of God. They were chosen by God. Noah was chosen by God. Abraham was chosen by God. Israel ultimately was chosen by God. They were the elect. They were favored by God. They were chosen by God for a purpose that god would give them and now peter is saying to these gentiles guess what you here who have confessed your faith in christ you now are the new israel you are the elect you're the chosen ones chosen by me for a purpose and we're going to see what that is in the coming verses to god's elect exiles who are scattered throughout the provinces now Peter uses this phrase exiles Foreigners and exiles quite a bit through this letter and it's an it's an important term to get our head rounds The word is "parapedomus," and it means a resident foreigner someone who has come from another place And they are now residing in this new place and they are residing amongst the natives. They do not belong here. They are exiles, Peter says, resident foreigners. Now, for those of you who weren't born in New Zealand, and there is a number of you here, I know. I'm not casting aspersions on you, but you will know the journey that it takes when you move from being an immigrant to being a resident, to being a citizen. And there's a transition as you move through those phases of your life. You don't ever, if you like, be a native of that place. But there is a transition that takes place. And that's what Peter is picking up on here when he says to the chosen people who are exiles, resident foreigners you live here but you are still somewhat distinct from the people around you you have been scattered Peter says exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia where is this well if we had a map behind me we would see that this is modern-day Turkey And most scholars would say that that those different provinces is probably where the letter went. This is probably where it was delivered, and province by province, uh, this letter, Silas, would take it, and he would proclaim the whole letter to the gathered exiles in front of him, the church there. So it's modern-day Turkey is where we are talking about. Chosen according to God's foreknowledge. Peter says, you've been chosen according to God's foreknowledge. Prognosis. It's the same word that we have borrowed into our English language. But this prognosis, this foreknowledge that God has, is not some medical guess about what's going to happen to your health. This foreknowledge that God has chosen these people is a very, very deliberate understanding of God because God resides in eternity. Turn back to me to Ephesians 1 chapter 11, where Paul unpacks this word a little bit more fully. In Ephesians chapter 1, 11, we read the following, In him you were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So this choosing according to God's foreknowledge is not just a decision that God makes. God dwelling in eternity is outworking his plan. He has predestined this choosing of the people of God, Peter is saying here. And he is going to outwork that plan because you are my chosen people. That's the understanding that Peter has here. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Back to 1 Peter. Now, if ever you had a question, uh, struggled with the doctrine of the Trinity, and you're not sure where to go when you want to unpack who God is in his trinity. These couple of verses are not a bad place to go. Listen to the next verse. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. If you're ever wrestling with what the doctrine of the trinity means, that's not a bad place to go. God the Father has Chosen you according to his foreknowledge. How is that happening? How is that working? Well, it's working itself out by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means that the Spirit is changing you, purifying you, setting you apart as holy. It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In accord with what? in accord with the Lord Jesus Christ who has sprinkled with his blood. Again, Peter is using this very Jewish language here, the sprinkling of the bloods. He's taking us back to Exodus, Exodus 24, 8, where we learn Moses took the blood, he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Peter is saying the new covenant is here. By faith you have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed at the cross of Calvary. You, the chosen ones, have been sprinkled with that. What's your response? Peter says the only response that you can have is a response of obedience. So what's the work of the Trinity again? You have been chosen by the Father due to his foreknowledge. You're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made pure, set apart as holy. You've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And your response can only be one of obedience. How do we apply these verses to our lives? How do we apply them this morning? I started by saying that our context is so very, very similar to the context of Peter's first hearers we're gentiles but we live in continuity with the promises of Israel 200 years after Peter wrote this letter the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity overnight the Roman Empire became Christianized if you like and so by decree of Caesar by decree of Constantine the Roman Empire became Christianized. And for many, many hundreds of years, in the Western world, we've lived in a Christianized culture, if you like, for good or for ill. Most of us grew up with that nominal sense that the church and Christianity and the influence of God were shaping our public life. In recent years and that's become even more intense in recent weeks the influence of the gospel of jesus christ is having less and less an impact on our public life in fact i would say it is now being actively by government decree being exercised out of our public life and so we find it as christians that we are no longer In the mainstream of public thoughts and practice how do we live our lives the disease that you feel about government moves around euthanasia about abortion about marriage equality is because your culture my culture has embraced the myth of secular pluralism where all faith statements are equal and so the church is being actively marginalized Now, that may or may not be a bad thing for the health of the church. You don't have to live in Nigeria to experience persecution for your faith in Christ. Peter, in his letter, as we're going to find over these next coming weeks, says, take heart, take heart, be encouraged. You are no longer in the center of your society, but were you ever supposed to be at the center Peter says the follower of Jesus is a resident stranger in this world. You are rejected by our plural culture, but guess what? You have been chosen by God. So don't worry about if you're feeling marginalized. Don't worry if you are feeling pressurized by the public utterances of our government or whoever, our media. You have been chosen by God." Chosen by his forethought. You're being sanctified by his Holy Spirit. You're being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Your sins have been paid for. You have been forgiven. And so what's our response? Our response is to be one of obedience. Obedience to the word of God. Obedience to the call of Christ. Now the church has struggled with that down through the ages. The church is still struggling with that down through the ages. And in some sense, that's why we're here this morning. Over the years, the church has chosen three or four possible options. One option is to separate ourselves, to be a holy huddle, where we are completely separate from the world. We are pure, we are set apart, and all will be well. But I don't see that as being Jesus' instruction for us in the Gospels. Or another option for the church is to conform, and many mainline Protestant denominations are conforming to the patterns of this age. It is very easy to be tempted and conform to the patterns of the age. Again, I don't see that in Scripture as being a viable option of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. A third option, and I think this is the most dangerous option for us and for all Christians, is to believe the lie that this faith that we are gathering to proclaim this morning is a private faith. And we can just stay in these four walls. We can keep our religion to ourselves. We can pray at home. We can pray privately. But that's the heresy of the Enlightenment And it's exactly what our current culture wants to say. That's fine, you lovely Christians. Just keep your faith to yourselves. Keep it as a private religion. And don't offend us. We won't offend you. That I think we're going to find quite clearly in Peter's writing over the next few months is not an option. What is the option? Peter says to live out your faith boldly, wisely, and gracefully, bearing witness to a crucified Savior who died for the sin of the whole world. And this truth is public truth that we must proclaim and live publicly. Last weekend, some of you joined us as we celebrated the wedding of my firstborn and his beloved, And I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I said to some people, I think I was more nervous for that wedding than for my own. I'm not sure why, but that was just the reality of last Saturday afternoon. But there were about 250 people gathered at Knox First Church last week. And people's estimates, half of those were probably non-Christian and half of them were believers. And many of my family are not believers, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go because they know full well why I'm here in this church called Hope Church. They know full well my understanding on Christian marriage. And yet when people to a person, when they experienced the rightness, the goodness, and the truth of two people being chosen by God and coming together as a witness to God they realized that they had tasted a sample of the kingdom of Christ. It was a public declaration. Folks, the church is a public declaration. Peter is saying to us, this crucified and risen Savior is alive and is reigning, and we must follow him. We've been chosen by God the Father. We're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We must obey the Lord Jesus because he paid the price, the ultimate price for each and every one of us. We can't do that public, we can't do that privately. Don't allow the world to conform you into a private expression of religion. Peter is saying it's going to be costly. We're going to learn over the next 3 months. He knew, he paid the ultimate price like his savior did. It's going to be costly this journey, Hope Church. It is going to be costly. We are going to be called to suffer. But we've been chosen. We will be marginalized by the world. We will be mocked by the world. We will suffer at the hands of the world. But we have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God. We're being transformed by the Holy Spirit We have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. What else can we do but obey him and follow him? Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, in many respects, we are beginning a journey with you in all sorts of different ways. And we know that the climate that we are placed in is a hostile climate. Christendom has passed in these lands. And for some of us, we might be able to rejoice in that. For some of us, there is a grief and a letting go and a loss in that. But, Lord, we thank you that you have chosen each and every one of us here this morning. We thank you that you are transforming us by the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you again this morning for the sprinkled blood of Christ that allows us and our sins to be forgiven. Lord, this morning we choose to obey you. We choose to follow you whatever the cost, though it might cost us suffering, though it might cost us our lives, we choose to follow you this day. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to your promises to each and every one of us. We claim those promises as we walk in step with you. In Jesus' name I pray. I invite the musicians to come forward as we.